This is a bonus episode that was recorded on Clubhouse. Clubhouse is an app for iOS devices that is currently open by invitation only. If you would like an invitation, text me at 917-414-2625. And if I have an invite available, I will share it with you. You can find me there at Annie Grossman. So thanks for being here, everybody. Uh, I've asked Yolanta, who is a, a virtual assistant specializing in dog businesses, to be here to um, help me uh, moderate this room because I've never moderated a room before and I didn't want to get it wrong. Um, and uh, Anna Hayward is here. Anna wrote the wonderful, very moving, um, poignant article bad dog which appeared uh in the new yorker last week anna hayward is a school for the dogs apprentice uh and uh started out with us as a client i actually i interviewed anna for the podcast a few months ago and then wanted to have another conversation with her for the podcast about her article but thought it would be uh, fun and interesting to open it up to others who read the article. Um, so, Anna, thank you for being here. And if anybody um, would like to ask Anna a question or discuss the article, just go ahead and um, use that like hand raising button on the bottom of the screen, and uh, Yolanta or I will um, will ping, as they say, <laughs> ping you. To, uh, to the stage to speak. But Anna, um, why don't you go ahead and maybe just introduce yourself and talk a little bit about what you're, what you're doing these days when you're not um, apprenticing and you're not uh, writing fabulous articles for The New Yorker. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, thanks. Thanks for having me and thanks for hosting this, Annie. This is, you know, um, I know people have probably read cheerier and um happier articles about dog care and dog stewardship and um animal companionship so um you know we're we're gonna keep it light and happy today but um thank you everyone for you know reading and being here with us and yeah as annie said i'm a an apprentice at school for the dogs um i began as a client um in 2017 with a dog who had really, really bad separation anxiety. And Annie and I talked about him the last time we did a podcast together. Um, I was helped by one of the School for the Dogs senior trainers, Anna Ostroff. And that was really kind of the beginning of my interest in thinking about animal behavior, maybe not professionally, but maybe seriously. And so, um, yeah, fast forward a few years, I became an apprentice. I'm also now in grad school um, for animal behavior and welfare at Penn School of Veterinary Medicine. And you're doing that uh, remotely, right? Yeah, I mean, doing everything remotely. Even my apprenticeship, I've been doing remotely. I don't know, you probably talked about that a few times on the podcast already, but um, remote dog training is an interesting, um, uh, you know, discussion to have as well. It's great. For some dogs, like mine, my dog would never be able to participate in a tricks class um, in a in a live setting with other dogs and people in the room. So that's been, um, yeah, there's, there's been the peaks and the troughs of doing everything online mm -hmm. this past well, year. Well, we're actually, I, I think 
you know this already, but we're actually in the process of putting as much of the apprenticeship as we can online. Actually, just today I was um, working on uh, editing some of the video lectures and um, and what's really cool about it actually is that uh, a huge a huge part of it is going to be completely free because we really want to like take away the barriers um, uh, between people who are interested in becoming dog trainers people who can become dog trainers um, but um, so how did this how did this article come come about I guess I guess that or maybe a better better <laughs> question is <laughs> how did Jack uh, come into your life um, right, or pick, pick, pick or choose your questions <laughs> Jack came into my life. I had been fostering for a couple of years um, on and off when Jack arrived. Um, and it was kind of a case, it was described briefly in, in the piece, but I guess Jack had moved through a couple of different homes after a few different foster carers discovered that he had some, he had challenging um his behavior was really challenging and, and hard to predict. So um, he came to me. I, I hadn't applied to foster him or anything. I just asked if I could take him, and I said yes twice. <laughs> and, um, you know, that's soon after discovering some of the confusing and challenging aspects of his behavior, I guess I realized wow this is he's he's more difficult i mean more difficult is i'd had difficult fosters before but he was difficult in a, in a kind of a new way so um i went after going through that whole process with jack and then after he died i guess um i, I started writing um the first little seeds of the essay pretty soon after he left but it took me quite a while to write it took me maybe like six months to a year I think before I sent you that first draft Annie mm -hmm. that you read um so it was a slow process and it was kind of it actually it coincided with my beginning the apprenticeship and and um beginning more formal education and some of the science in there is um the, the result of, of my apprenticeship and school and that kind of thing and the reading that I was doing alongside those those pursuits. Um, so for those who haven't read the article, do you want to do you want to um, give a, a summary? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so um, Jack was a small dog. He was middle aged and he needed a foster home because he he'd been kicked out of a few different homes because he had aggression. He had very pretty low bite inhibition and he was unpredictable and he, he didn't give too many warnings before he bit. So that was really challenging. Um, and the first time he came to me, um, it became a problem for my boyfriend at the time. <laughs> you know, quite understandably. I don't want to <laughs> criticize him or anything, but he he wasn't really into living with Jack. So, well, um, and and it should be said, you were a rather experienced foster at this point, and you'd actually started working with Anna, um, with another dog before this, right? Who had behavior? Yeah, issues. yeah. 
yeah, I had, but, you know, and Freddie had extreme, the dog who Anna helped me with, Anna Ostroff, um, the senior trainer at school for the dogs, helped me with, he had extreme reactivity, but it was just so different from Jack. Freddie had very, very serious separation anxiety. So he was really difficult to manage. He couldn't be left alone because, you know, he would self-harm. He had really, really really hair trigger for his anxiety but it's really different from a dog who bites you know the management strategies that we use and the training strategies that we use and the the just the risks the whole the whole shebang it's really different so um although I had some experience with difficult behavior um biting without warning was not something that I had experienced much of before you know little bits of predictable aggression is it's kind of different from from the way that jack behaved um so jack came back um and we started living together and do do um, you think the fosters sought you out because they knew that you you could or not could handle but might be open to trying to handle a more a more difficult case uh yeah, maybe. I think they just really needed a place for Jack also, and they were just trying. And Holly knew at that point that um, my boyfriend and I had broken up and that I was living alone, and I guess that made it more that that made it a more hospitable environment for Jack because the kind of the the fewer people and the more predictable um, his home would be, the better. So he came back and. Um, we entered into the process of living together and um, it was kind of just me kind of trying to catch up with him, you know, because trying to compensate for what I didn't, you know, didn't know about him and learn about him as fast as I could and um, manage his environment as best as I could. Because at the time, you know, I did not have any formal training. I did not have um, all the information that I have now and the experience that I have now. And, I, you know, I just, it was it was a, a, a pretty kind of um, improvised process of, of trying to adapt to, to Jack. So um, I would do things like, um, you know, stop having people over, um, stop playing certain kinds of music or um, cooking certain things, just trying to, to, to keep his environment as low key as possible. Um, but um, it wasn't perfect. And um, we did have a few bite incidents. And so when I had to go away, um, I, found another place for Jack to stay. There was another foster who had experience with um, uh, with aggression um, with the same rescue. So he went to stay with her, but um, that's, you know, it, it did not quite work well, out. Can, so we, can, can we back up a little bit? So, I mean, part of what I think uh, is so interesting about your story and really... Um, the saddest part and and those who have just joined thanks for being here we're discussing uh anna hayward's article uh bad dog which was in the new yorker last week with anna um 
I think part of what's so heartbreaking about your story is that you were, you already had a little bit of an education on science-based, reward-based training, and you were really trying to take baby steps and do everything right by Jack, um, and including preparing for your trip. You were doing it in such a thoughtful, um, methodical manner, and then uh, based on kind of um, uh, and maybe advice from your family or just sort of like cultural fog, you had a moment of of um, deciding that you just needed to be, you needed to be the boss, you needed to be the alpha. And uh, would you describe it that way and maybe talk about what happened? I, I mean, I just had a moment of thinking, like, maybe I'm overreacting here. Maybe it'll be fine if I just go ahead, you know, and it was not. <laughs> I, I overstepped Jack's boundaries in that moment, um, you know, and the, the, it was completely my fault, resulted in a bite incident. Um, and, yeah, so Jack sadly ended up being a case of behavioral euthanasia, um, which was not my decision, um, but who knows, you know, what would have happened if um, if he'd stayed with me. Um, and, uh, yeah, that, that process just led me into um, kind of kind of wanting to learn what had happened and what I could have done differently. And that was when I began thinking about, you know, changing my career and um, really learning um, science-based dog training and going back to school. So um, all of that happened in the wake of, in the wake of Jack. And um, funnily enough, the dog, my dog now, my foster fail, um, I actually didn't know this about her when she arrived, but she was on a behavioral euthanasia list at her shelter in Texas um, before she came into the rescue. Um, there was a, um, a volunteer who ended up reevaluating her and taking her out at the last minute. So um, I knew she had a bite history and some challenging behavior. Um, she's, she had multiple level three events, which on the Dunbar scale is, um, it's not great. You know, she, um, had broken skin and um, uh, it, multiple uh, um, attacks at, at different times. And um, so I took her in after Jack and I was really honestly so scared of her for weeks. Um, but in many ways, Jack really prepared me for her and um, and all of the learning that I've done since then has been applied to, to Big Girl in um, much more successful ways. And She's here right next to me playing with her toy. Well, it's... Really happily and calmly. I think the part of the the essay that got me the most was the ending um, where you kind of imagine the moment of his of his death. And, um, and uh, I, I read the essay before, I, before it, it was published, so it didn't have the title Bad Dog yet. Um, but I, yeah, that was chosen by the editor, but I don't object to it at all. It, cause it, you know, I think it, it, it does do the job of kind of showing it's an essay about what went wrong. Yeah. It's not yeah. A celebrating well, I, I, I don't, I don't mind it as a title either. Um, but as a, as a, as a dog as trainer, an idea. as a dog trainer, I'm going to deconstruct it, <laughs> you know, I actually just yesterday, someone was, was asking me, you know, are, can dogs be born bad or or 
um, or is it all the owner's fault? And and I said, well, you know, before before we talk about what behaviors might be born baked in and, and what might be brought on by the environment, including or not including the owner, you know, let's address the fact that bad is is completely um, it's subjective. Right, well, bad, I mean, bad and, is a moral term, isn't yeah. it? And it's just so unhelpful in evaluating what drives behavior. I mean, and in, in another in another environment, a dog who is anxious or aggressive um, or you know whatever we might call bad. My, those behaviors might actually benefit the dog in another environment, which could make them a good dog, right? Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, there are dogs whose job it is to bite. There are dogs who are trained to bite. There are times at which biting is a really important and helpful behavior. The example I like to give is um, um, is one that uh, an incident that happened with Big Girl in which we were taking a nap together, and I she's a small dog, she's 12 pounds, I rolled over in my sleep and started squishing her against the bed, which is super dangerous for her because I'm so much bigger than her. And she gave me a really sharp little nip that caused me to recoil and roll away from her. And it's like, you know, it, it's a total survival behavior that was the perfect response that needed to happen in that moment. And that's why she has the bite response. It's to protect her from dangers in her environment. And who knows what had happened if she had not had that response you know it, it there are times when biting works that um uh that exist for a reason and it's up to us as the stewards of these animals with these responses to make sure that we are guiding the managing the environment and 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 guiding the the reinforcement so that the dog is doing things that keep it safe, right? Which generally is not biting. That's not a good or helpful behavior for pet dogs. And um, so it's up to us to do everything we can to make sure that, that, that those kinds of extreme responses are really only ever used in extreme circumstances like that. Yeah, yeah. I, I heard one dog trainer recently talking about how, um, you know, a dog may be born into a situation of, uh, of surplus and um, where the environment is perfect for them. And, and that can breed a, a confident, happy dog. But, a, but a, a dog might also be born into um, an environment where resources are scarce and the same dog might turn into a very different kind of dog uh in um in in a if there's a, a a desert of of the stuff a dog needs to survive so so much depends upon um the world we create for the dog as far as what behaviors we're going to get um would love to hear from anyone who is here um hey claudia hey alex hey anna marie justice i know some of you all um if anyone read the article and uh, would like to share anything they felt about it um or has any questions uh we would love to bring you on stage um do know we are recording this session for school for the dogs podcast um so if you if you could just be aware of that uh, if it's okay with you uh and introduce yourself yael hi Hi, thanks for having me up here. Um, I was not even aware of this article. I just read it while after I came into the room. 
and oh my god it was so moving and so touching to me and that was just amazing that you gave so many chances to Jack um but I mean actually a lot of it reminded me of a dog I had as a child who we had had as a puppy who was a fear biter because she went for also men who were carrying things mm-hmm. briefcases umbrellas trench men in trench coats and we had to unfortunately put her down the fifth person she bit was a neighbor of ours who was also like 10 years old who came to our door like swinging a jump rope and mouse which was the dog's name like ran out of our door and bit her in the leg and she required quite a number of stitches um mouse was a german shepherd so also very different from a 10-pound dog. Had Mouse been 10 pounds, mm. she would have gotten an ankle and everybody probably would have laughed it off and, you know, moved on. Um, the thing that struck me, though, just to get done with my story, is that I, especially a dog like Jack, that you really don't necessarily know what happened before you got him. Like, mm-hmm. he obviously had PTSD. I mean, just his reactions and everything. That's what I kept thinking while I was reading the article. Yeah, I think that's very likely. Yes, and while the outcome was, like, awful and I can understand, like, wanting to feel like you could have done more, I just want to say you really did everything for him. And in a way, he really, I mean, he was totally a dog in pain. I mean, that's everything that I got from that article that he was just living life in pain every day and not able to handle like his own behavior even yeah it's a good um maybe this is a good um point to to raise the fact that behavioral euthanasia is a it's i mean it's such a difficult topic it's really painful nobody likes talking about this topic or having to go through the experience but it is really misunderstood and I think one of the um, um, important things to think about is the way that we kind of manage the dog's experience of the world. We're generally really good at thinking about things like physical pain and quality of life, but we are often kind of less adept at considering or being compassionate about the mental pain that the animal is in and the quality of life that's happening. And um, euthanasia being not just a a sad outcome but sometimes a humane one for um for the animal in question because we have to think about what we are setting what kind of life the dog is going to have available which is um can be an uncomfortable question but you know living in pain is you know who are who are we doing this for is it for us is it for the dog those are all really important questions to think about in this in this sad this sad question well and and like a ten, yes. something sort of tangentially related is that physical pain can cause uh behaviors that we often don't like and uh it certainly is complicated with dogs cuz we often we, we often can't know if they're actually in in physical pain. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I was brought up that, like, you know, euthanasia, it was a thing that we occasionally did have to, I mean, I hate to say put to sleep, but um, 
we I grew up with many many dogs and we would occasionally would have to for whatever reason they were myriad and each dog was different but um the one thing that was always like ingrained in us is whatever you're doing it ha- you have to say is this for me or for the dog and the answer always had to be it is the best thing for the dog yeah i mean that safety is also a real concern you know in the case that that you brought up with mouse it's just just think about like what could have been the worst case scenario in that situation that you described with the neighbor and you know dogs are not humans they have just different everything from us and we have to make sure that we are keeping everyone safe in the situation uh, as well you know i was pretty lucky that i never had that kind of an experience with jack it uh, you know never felt like i was truly unsafe or anything like that even though i did feel like i was out of my depth the whole time you know constantly wondering where does this come from what am i am i pushing am i getting toward the limit am i not is what's going to happen next it, you know it, with a, it, a dog who's much bigger or has different kind of anatomy it's you know the, the equation changes a little bit depending on on who the dog is and what's around did you did you um consider working with a professional trainer yeah, yeah. I mean, we did some training with him. This, the so the piece. I mean, Annie. I think by the time you read it, the piece had was already shortened. But it started out at forty thousand words. <laughs> well, it, I think I already like, told you. I think I think it should be a book. So this could be a good starting point. <laughs> well, so there's so much that didn't go into the published essay, um, and that is one of the big. Res- I've had so many people write such moving things to me um, since it was published. You know, a lot of people wanting to share their own stories, their experiences with different dogs who who had something in common with Jack or um, similar experiences they that they had. But a lot of people also wanted to know: um, Did you try any kind of training and management with him? And what about muzzles? And what about crates? And um, what about counter conditioning? And um, yeah, we did. There was training. There was lots of. I mean, certainly, if I had the chance, I would do things differently. I would do different kinds of training. I, you know, would do more and ask different people. And um, uh, you know, would have loved to have had all of the knowledge and the skills and the resources that I have now. But I didn't. Um, and yeah, we did do some training with Jack and we did do science-based training with Jack. There was certainly no um, no punishment um, involved in, in his um, training program. But uh, uh, yeah, we did we did train Jack. And what was... Oh, I just... Oh, oh I just... I was going to chime in on a couple yeah. thoughts. Oh, is this Anna Marie? Yes. Hey, so Anna Marie, why don't why don't you go ahead and in- introduce yourself since we are recording this and uh, yeah. and you are you are um, worth any introduction. Oh, <laughs> I am worth. I'm worthly. I'm worthy. Um, I'm Anna Marie. Um, I used to be um, a trainer at School for the Dogs for three years. Um, I'm originally from California and moved out to New York to get my master's in animal behavior from um, Hunter. Um, came back out to California, um, managed the shelter and uh, behavior department for a small um, 
uh, no kill, which is a whole other discussion. Topic. Yeah, that's the whole. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no kill shelter out here in uh, California, and then now I'm um, doing my um, PhD um, in Clive Wynn's um, lab out of ASU. Um, so, I mean, I think there was a lot of things that like popped up for me in the article, having been both on the training side of things and the, the shelter side of things. And one of the things that really popped up for me a memory, um, and I've experienced, I mean, I'm fortunate enough that most of my behavioral euthanasia, fortunate is a relative term, uh, my experience has not been with personal dogs. Um, it's been, you know, with shelter animals. Um, mm -hmm. But I had this really vivid um, memory of, um, and I think there's two sides of the equation that I, you know, bring up in this topic is, um, I had a family come to me um, when I was managing the shelter uh, which they came to me with a dog with a fairly severe bite history, um, 10 year old doodle, small doodle. Um, and they came to us being a no kill shelter, um, with this concept of, and I think this is also the mindset that happens with trainers this concept of, Oh, the shelter can either fix the problem or, um, can give concept of behavioral euthanasia where people default to this idea of, oh, they probably didn't try hard enough to do X, Y, and Z. Mm -hmm. um, so I had this family come to me and they were obviously like very distraught. They had had the dog since it was a puppy, um, had done literally all the right things. And um, they had children. So the children were a bite risk. Um, and uh, the wife had been bitten. There wasn't really any issues and I'm going through their background with them and they're like oh you know well we moved from Hawaii and then we lived out there and he's seen you know vet behaviorists all over the place and we've done different kind of um positive reinforcement training and we've done behavioral medication and oh you know we have this whole rotation where the dog is exposed and you know we have x pen set up but you know it only can be out for a half an hour and all this kind of stuff and oh the dog had um heart issues so then we did a whole treatment we drove to we went to france and we did the whole heart replacement and i just oh looked goodness. at them and i said i want to tell you that i know this is a hard decision but i was like you didn't fail this dog because i think that's the yeah. default like these were people that literally expended any type of resource that they had and they came to this decision they came to this point where they said you know we can't have our dog in our house but we're failing it and they you know just gave me this litany of ideas and i just wanted to say like i'm you one you didn't fail this dog um and then two you know it would have been really easy from a shelter perspective to be like oh my god a 10 year old doodle we never get doodles in the shelter yeah maybe we can fix it um but i made it really clear to them that as a um you know steward of the shelter and a steward for the community i said you know you've done everything for this dog and what your dog's telling me is you know your dog is you know, from what I'm hearing, your dog's not happy. You're, you know, and us, you giving your dog, this dog, everything, um, and me putting it in a new environment is likely not going to change this scenario. And that's also not fair to the dog. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it was this really big kind of, and they said, you know, but, oh, we think this can fix it. And we think this can fix it. And I said, you know, it's time that, you know, you give your dog a really good life. It's time you, you know, Yeah, Anne Marie, I think you might have cut yeah. out brief. Oh no, I've got you back. Sorry. Oh yes. Yeah. So I was just saying, you know, it wasn't responsible from a shelter. You know, quote unquote, this is on every 
taken a look at this photo, you know, of a dog, hey, hey, it's a highly adoptable dog. It's a doodle. Someone will pick it up in 24 hours. But that's not a responsible, um, that's not the point. And I made a big point to them is, you know, we have, dogs have evolved and we have dogs in part that they provide opportunity to us in our lives. Um, And no one should have a dog in their life that they feel trapped by. Um, or, um, and because equally, in my opinion, I feel like the dog similarly feels that in its environment. Um, you know, we have dogs and particularly coming from a shelter environment, you have dogs that have a family environment. You don't have a dog that you are, um, and it sounds terrible to say, but, you know, kind of, um, you know, beholden to just because you have this idea that it, it would be worse for it to, you know, be euthanized when the dog's probably, frankly, like pretty miserable, stressed out all the time. Um, you know, those are always things that came up, you know, come up to me when I have this decision. And those are really hard discussions to have. But it's the rational, you know, it's the exposure yeah, no, it's, to the public, it's the which humane, is what your article did. Yeah. You have to keep the, the human also in mind in your humane treatment of of, yeah. of animals in general. I mean, what you just described sounds like such a perfect storm for so many of the misunderstood and yep. um, misconceived ideas about behavioral euthanasia. And I, I mean, my heart really goes out to that family. It's, it is not an easy situation to be in. Yeah. And ultimately, they, you know, they left and I said, you know, you're welcome to surrender your dog you know, to this shelter, I said, you know, I would wreck. And they had said, you know, other behavior vets had said it. They hoped that they could get one alternative opinion. And I said, you know, you're welcome to surrender. You know, we'll have, you know, we'll make it a, you know, comfortable, you know, transition. Um, And they said, no, they decided that they were going to go to, you know, some type of some man that had dogs that lived out in the middle of Canada and they were going to, you know, live on that like existential farm. And I said, okay, you know, that's your decision. Mm. Um, and then they came back to me, you know, two weeks later and they said, you know, he can't take it. Do you think your opinions changed? And I said, you know, I'm sorry, my opinions haven't changed. And that was the last I ever saw them. Um, so I don't ultimately, you know, it's unfortunate. I don't ultimately know what happened, but I yeah. felt as tough as it was, I felt good in the sense that I gave them the best option that they could have for themselves and their dog yeah i mean if we had if if maybe and hopefully the the our understanding of what euthanasia is will change in time and that family will not feel so families like that will not feel so bad about the idea of uh just kind of being forced to keep this dog alive and in human company against all evidence and against all I mean, because once in a while, there will be a blue moon kind of situation where it's like, this dog has a lot of problems, but there is a very unique niche situation in which this dog can live out the rest of its life. So, I I mean, that's kind of the situation with my dog. She has a robust bite history and she cannot be around children and she needs a lot of careful management. But I feel like I've been able to provide her with really good quality of life and with she's had a lot of successful behavior modification and um she very rarely has to go into stressful situations obviously Mm -hmm. unavoidable we have to go to the vet she hates that it's just part of the deal she has to wear a muzzle she has to be medicated but it is i mean it is really a difficult calculation for me to go every single day is her quality of life where it should be would i opt into the life that i'm providing for her yes so scared by the world in so many common situations is this okay you know 
um, what are the options for her? It's not, I mean, it's not easy for the human. So, you know, yeah, and I, I think I mean, that that's, you know, you happen to be a very lucky person that, that you happen to be the person that got her from, you know, the shelter environment. But I think that's, you know, that adds to a whole other layer of you know, the responsible stewardship of rescues, which I know is a whole other hot topic of the sense of, you know, you know, that's a decision that, and I, I am very fortunate. I haven't had to make that decision very often in my shelter career, but you know, what is, we can wait for that one in a million person for that dog, but then, you know, the dog's, you know, sitting in a shelter or, um, you know, only sees one person a day. Um, how is that fair? And yeah, it's not fair that the dog got stuck in a shelter environment, but that's the situation that's at hand. Um, and it's, it's the responsibility of the shelter to not also, you know, pass the buck because, you know, um, that's how I, that's how I interpret it of, you know, the shelter now, oh, we have this dog and, oh, there's this one person that thinks, yeah, it's, you know, okay, we can, I can take this on. Um, yeah, it's, it's a nice idea, it's, but it's, it's rarely a reality. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then, you know, you're putting that person in the position where they do have to live their life around expens and all that kind of stuff. And not many people are like you <laughs> or, or like me or like other, you know, other people that are willing to take that on. And that's, you know, a responsibility of moving forward in the shelter world um, that does have a very big um, no-kill experience and no-kill in the context of um, – quality of life and using aversive training methods just for the sake of not euthanizing a dog which right once again is a whole other discussion <laughs> and i mean not everyone has the option of opting into being like me either you know i'm yeah, single exactly. and i live alone there are people with families who have to you you just have to consider people it you know people often feel very shamed about as you as you said the idea of failing the dog and um if you cannot manage a dog with severe behavioral problems, that is not because you're a failure of a person, mm -hmm. <laughs> which yep. I really want people to hear and know that it's not easy and it's not for everyone. Yep. Uh, it looks like um, we have uh, Jay here. Uh, Jay, um, would you introduce yourself? Also know that we are recording this for school for the dogs podcast, but um, it, did you read the article and, and and what did you think? I absolutely read the article. It was sent to me. Uh, I loved it and uh, I sent it on to some friends of mine who are also having a very similar situation with uh, one of their pups. Uh, I have to say, uh, Anna, you did an amazing job. They, in their situation uh, with a dog that is uh, temperamental, does have a uh, level three bite history or category three bite history, and that they've been doing so much work trying to find him, trying to work with behaviorists, multiple trainers. They have very much felt that they have let the dog down by not being able to control or better his behavior mm -hmm. to the point where when they had their toddler uh, in 2019, he did, despite our best efforts, he did not take very well to it. And he's been staying with me for almost a, a year, except when I have to be at work. So he still gets to spend time with him. I've more or less been fostering him, but he still gets to see his parents. But this, reading that article, they said that it really made them feel not alone in their behavior 
and it, it really meant so much to them to read it and understand that these incidents do happen. And it's just, as Anna Marie mentioned earlier, people tend to feel like we are failing the dog when we can't provide the right environment for it or to give it uh, the kind of happiness or the life where it's most comfortable, even if that person may not be able to provide an environment that is best suited to it. But thank you so much for writing that article. It was uh, very touching. I, I can't tell you the amount of people I've sent that to. It was just wonderful. Uh, well, um, thank you so much for saying so. And um, my heart really goes out to, to your friends because, you know, especially I can't imagine, you know, with a toddler in the mix, that is just a really, really scary situation that nobody should be in. And it sounds like your dog agrees. <laughs> well, that, that one is actually uh, my girl. She, um, she just heard somebody at the door. She is, uh, she's a very, very different. They are, they tolerate each other while they're here. They're both uh, small. He's a Shih Tzu Chihuahua mix, so he's um, only maybe 22 pounds, but uh, surprising, um, just triggers that they can't seem to pin down that let them out. But uh, that actually led me to a question that I was going to pose to all of you. Um, this We all live in a, in a world where a simple internet search can reveal so much information about uh, dog behaviors or ways to train your dog, but if you do a little digging, you quickly find out so much of it is terrible advice that uh, relies on antiquated methods that are not science-based and even nationally national chains of behaviorists will fall back on methods such as uh, you know, a bag full of uh, chains or coins to distract a dog, which if you have a, an already anxious pup, it's going to just further exacerbate their conditions. What would you suggest for anyone who's listening to this and experiencing problems are, is there a set of resources that would be a go-to or simple things to look for, uh, you know, behaviorists or et cetera, ethnologists, for animals following that uh, any information like that would be really appreciated for anybody who's picking this up or experiencing a similar condition yeah annie it's going to have uh, probably a lot to to say in response to that as well i mean one big thing it, that is not going to the situation isn't really going to change i think unless we get regulation it's an unregulated industry with no occupational licensing and um I would personally like that to change for the sake of both humans and dogs. Um, but uh, I guess a short way of answering that question is that you can go to apdt.com and you can look at trainers who are registered with that um, respected science-based professional guild. And that will show you a list of trainers who have um, committed to continuing education and who have passed educational standards that are... Um, really really sound um and you know it really is a buyer beware market in terms of who you can hire as a trainer and what they know about how animals learn so i know anna uh, annie and anna marie there's so many annas here <laughs> we'll also have answers to that question but yeah, i was actually i was gonna say um i'm actually part of my phd work um that i'm actually looking at is particularly this kind of um what people are saying and how people are buying into it um so one of my work in progress is right progress right now is actually um doing some um uh qualitative text analysis of 
what people are putting on, what trainers are putting on their websites. Um, and basically kind of in, in summary <laughs> is basically there wasn't a lot of consistency as much as you wanted in terms of what is actually being said which goes to the fact of people can say what they want. And considering that I pulled my data from um, 100 top-rated trainers from Yelp from 10 different United States cities, it's showing that people are seeing this and going and using this and highly rating these people that have no consistency of their, their views or their recommendations. Um, you know, there's kind of this, you know, idea of, you know, there was a lot of, there was this one website where basically their credentials were I used to work in the military and all their photos were them in their you know military gear and that was their experience with dogs um or you know I have some connections to dogs um and um can you know connecting to that a lot of them were not um certified even to the certifications that Annie or myself have of uh, CPDT or um, KPA or any of that, that was very lacking. Um, there was only about 30% out of the 100 that actually had a certification. Um, so yeah, it is a big problem in terms of the licensing um, and regulation. And connected to that, you know, another um, study that I'm in the process of right now is um, getting an idea of what methods people actually use to work through problem behaviors. Um, I'm doing a pilot study right now with um, some students at ASU, the undergraduates. Um, and, you know, in one of the initial studies, they say, oh, if they have a problem behavior, they ask their vet. But when you actually get to the nitty gritty of them asking where they receive this information, it was friends or family. Um, and so, and then, you know, <sighs> to second to that was the internet. Um, so, and that's been, perpetuated pretty consistently across um, different research um, papers that do talk about um, that information. And um, I think unless there is someone mainstream um, that actually changes, you know, everyone, I don't know if anyone knows about the new Netflix thing that just came out um, with mainstream media, these things just get perpetuated. Um, and uh, unfortunately, positive reinforcement is slow and not very pretty um, in the sense of it's kind of boring to look at from a um, perspective. And it's very compelling to say I took a dog that was very aggressive and I quote unquote fixed it. Um, so there has to be a major, in my opinion, major um, social change um, that I don't necessarily see in the next unfortunately, 15 or 20 years. Well, I, um, just just to jump in and to maybe be a, a little bit less <laughs> less negative <laughs> than your prediction, Anna Marie, <laughs> um, who, by the way, is one of my, my favorite people. And anytime you want to come back to work at School for the Dogs, you are, you are welcome. <laughs> you know how loved you are. <laughs> I know. Um, and thank you for being here. Um, I mentioned earlier that we we are putting um, so much of our apprenticeship online uh, and actually already if you go to um, schoolforthedogs.com slash courses, which will bring you to our online store, which has all of our on demand, um, all of our on demand courses. One of the courses that we just put up, and we haven't even really promoted it yet because it's like that new, it's called Born to Behave and it's, it's um, completely free and it's designed for people who want to um who are, who are interested in becoming trainers um I mean I don't think I, I wouldn't say you can do this course and then you're a dog trainer but I think it's a really good starting point um it's more than you know your average new dog owner who just wants their dog to not pee on the carpet it's, it's more uh than I would suggest uh for them to look at um 
But uh, Ilana Alderman, who um, has worked with School for the Dogs for ages, it's really her brainchild. And I, I mean, I have to give her credit for um, really uh, coming up with this idea of, of taking away the barriers so that we can um, have more people producing content that can be what comes up when you search for how do I get my dog to stop barking or whatever online so that we can have more informed people who can tell their friends things who will then tell their friends things. Um, you know, all the things that you're talking about, Jay, the way people learn because, um, you know, in my opinion, uh, dog training has gotten um, way too mixed up with some sort of new age idea about uh, energy and I, I blame Caesar Milan a lot for that. Um, I think we went from uh, an era of um, thinking that dogs had to be trained with force to and now an era that I think we're probably still in of um, sugarcoating the idea of training with force by talking about it in terms of energy when the truth is, you know, dog training is an application of behavioral science. And I think... Um, it's extremely interesting and exciting and fun and we have these like science experiments basically that we can do at home um, using your dog's you know nothing but your dog's kibble um, and uh, so I, I would say that part of um, our mission at School for the Dogs is to make dog training more fun more accessible certainly with the podcast um, you know my goal has been to try and communicate um, how interesting and exciting and fun uh, I think it can be and how much sense like how, how much how much it can make sense because you know if you if you dig in just a little bit um, you know you hit how it this is an application of uh, behavioral science and it's so hard to to argue to argue with it you know I, I was working um, a few years ago I was invited actually to London to work to do a demo for a trainer who called herself like a balanced trainer and she used to work for NASA and uh, and uh, I visited her home and she had like you know like a shot collar on the coffee table and and you know coins in a can that she would bring to sessions and I just thought like how can this person who is, has been a NASA scientist <laughs> not not see um, how how destructive it is uh, to use punishment, you know, I, I think you, you don't. Yeah, that's such a good point, Annie. I, and that to your point about energy, I would encourage anyone who ever hears that word from a dog trainer, please just ask, what do you mean? What does the word energy mean? Define it. You know, it's so often very vague terms like that. They are almost always, in my experience, um, they're used when the actual mechanisms that are making things happen are not known so you use a vague term like oh that's just natural or it's energy it's like well what you, please explain you know mother mother nature instinct <laughs> right exactly yeah. but i would also say you know everyone should learn about how fun it can be to train dogs but also if you are experiencing a severe behavioral problem like jay's friends are do hire someone who is experienced. Don't don't try to do it all yourself. It's you you shouldn't have to try to do it all yourself. Hire a CDBC or a CBCC certified trainer, and um, especially if it's aggression, you know, be safe and and hire a professional. 
Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I, there's certainly lots of parts of dog training that aren't fun and running around the ground on puppies. I'm not trying to say that but with puppies. Um, but I do think that uh, that it can be so fun and that so much of what we've been sold culturally about dog training is that, um, you know, it's it's your fault if your dog isn't behaving and uh, dog training is like a, um, you know, it's something that needs to be um, checked off of a list. You know, my dog is now trained uh, rather than it being sort of a, a commitment that you're making to, um, to your dog for your dog's whole life. Um, Anna, what's next? What, what are you going to be doing next as far as writing about dogs? I really would like to know. Um, yeah, you and my agent both. (laughs) (laughs) Let's defer that question for another day, for another podcast. (laughs) Anyone else here uh, have any questions or thoughts? Um, Thanks for being here. If If you've just joined recently, we're talking with Anna Hayward. Uh, who is a writer and also an apprentice at School for the Dogs and whose fabulous article, Bad Dog, just came out in The New Yorker. Uh, You can get to it if you just Google New Yorker Bad Dog. Hi, you guys. Thank you so much for inviting me on stage and talking about this. Hi, Mike. It really is the wild, wild west out there. Um, Pet Squad, Charleston just posted about it last week within the last seven days about how there's only three certified trainers in our area and the wait list to get their services is just not realistic. So the way I found my trainer and she did, she uses the balance method and we were using her up until the point where, um, we preferred to use, um, was Patricia McConnell's article, the cautious canine. What is that method called? Conditional counter counter conditioning counter okay yeah up until the point where we were um preferred to use counter conditioning we were um using her she was um we got our rescue from a great organization in charleston called pet helpers and she was the trainer that would come and help integrate that pet into your home um and so since that's how a lot of trainers are getting their business i'm wondering you know, we have a, a pet business here in Charleston, and what can I do to educate these businesses on, on, you know, how to use science to back up the trainers that they're recommending, and um, just being a better advocate for for animals here. You know, um, Charleston is ranked forty third out of fifty on the Animal um, League Defense Fund. As we need a lot of help, and I I want to try and help improve that situation. So I appreciate. Um, I appreciate what you guys are publishing to to help change that culture. I, I want to know what else I can do to help drive that locally. Thank you. Don't speak. Well, the great thing, Mike, about science is that it's based on processes that are um, that are center around evidence. So everything that we use in behavior modification is based on some kind of empirical evidence that has been gathered over years and has been you know results are um verifiable and repeatable and um so i mean not that everyone needs to become a scientist but it can be a good exercise if you're interested to go to uh scholar.google.com and type in your search terms and look for peer-reviewed evidence for for what you are trying to learn about um you know i and then of course 
if you look for professional guilds that are science-based, then you can pretty much trust what you're hearing from the certified professionals. But, you know, I understand it is it is really hard for just ordinary citizens who want to share their life with a dog to know what is what, because it is so, it, it can be really, really murky, and there's a lot of popular entertainment out there that just does a lot of um, damage to, um, you know, to, to people's perceptions of how things work. But maybe Anna-Marie has um, something to add to that, too. Uh, well, I was gonna, I was gonna say that, um, you know, kind of tying into this, back to this whole idea of, you know, behavioral euthanasia and dogs that have issues. Um, I think um, that's something that I've seen a lot in the shelter world, because you were mentioning that um, you had gotten your initial uh, recommendation for a trainer from the shelter that you worked at. Um, and I think um, because shelter, um, Shelters often see dogs within um, certain small time frames and not necessarily um, may or may not necessarily be seeing dogs in a long-term event. Um, I think uh, historically it's been very uh, easy and to default to the idea of using um, more balanced or aversive-based trainers in the sense of um, you sometimes do get responses really fast. Um, and so for uh, shelters that are trying to get dogs out into homes um, and are trying to have uh, that dog in a home and say, oh, it had this issue or we fixed it or you can do this method. Um, that's something that's um, very desirable, not necessarily thinking about the quality of life of that animal um, moving forward in that condition. Um, so I think that is something that you could try to do with other um, get, you know, involved in the rescues in your area um, and saying, you know, hey, let's kind of switch the focus into long term quality of life as opposed to we're just going to get the dog in the home and then, you know, move forward from there. Um, so that's something that you could try. Um, if you make good connections to the positive reinforcement trainers in your community, um, you can also encourage them to reach out to their own shelters um, and offer, um, you know, if they're willing, offer um, potential um, training services or um, to train volunteers. Um, the shelter that I worked at um, previously didn't have any um uh, shelter uh, behavior staff members and then when we took over the public shelter there was a lovely um, wall of prong collars on the wall because for big dogs that pull yeah those are the can be the really easy default um, and they just didn't think or didn't have the experience to look at harnesses so simple changes like that um, can definitely help mindset from the shelter environment that's trying to make minute changes um, uh, in you know for the animals in their care so you could always reach out to the shelters in your area and say hey this is what's worked for me um and see if they're willing to do that or you know fundraise harnesses can be more expensive than prong collars so helping fundraise organizations that say hey i'm gonna you know this organization we're gonna fundraise and give you a bunch of freedom harnesses um you know that's really that's something that's um really tangible and maybe can make a difference if they see that you know they have the same effect or better effect than something like a prong collar yep Thanks, Anna-Marie. Thanks, Mike. Um, really good question. Um, yeah, I mean, I would also plug that <laughs> uh, we have a free masterclass that um, you could suggest anyone take that I think is a, a good uh, accessible introduction to um, science-based training. Uh, you can get there at anniegrossman.com slash masterclass. 
Um, and, uh, and I also um, do encourage people who are interested in pursuing a career in dog training or just diving a little bit deeper to look at the Born to Behave course. Um, and, uh, and, you know, and there's so many great, there's so many great books out there. Um, I recommend anything written by Karen Pryor, Jean Donaldson, uh, Patricia McConnell. I think you already mentioned her, um, uh, Pat Miller, um, if anyone else up on stage here wants to oh, <laughs> shout out any book. books. Um, there's a good book. I, I stole it from you for a really long time, and then I think I gave it back to you. <laughs> so it's somewhere at the School for the Dogs Library. Um, it's by Annie Phoenix. Um, it's not to the extent of behavioral euthanasia, but it's the Midnight Dog Walkers. Uh -huh. um, and it's about dogs that have um, really bad reactivity, which, you know, for some people can be very hard to manage and feel like a failure. Um and that's actually written by a dog trainer and talking about her experience um, moving from actually, you know, not having any idea from it. Um, so that's something that um, might be Midnight Dog Walkers, I think it is. Dr. Sophia Yin. Uh, yes, she has, yeah, she has great. great resources. Lots of great uh, Lily Chin uh, graphics that are out there that are generally um, public domain. Um, the one I didn't hear you mention was My Dog is My Mirror. I think it's Kevin Behan. And yeah, don't, don't recommend that one. You don't recommend it. Right. It was really difficult, and we put it down rather quickly. But, I'm sorry um, you spent your time that way. The, the doggy language book. Oh, my gosh. I've scribbled so many little notes in that little that little pamphlet. Oh, that, that is big. that the Lily, the new Lily Chen book? Lily Chen, yeah. Lovely. Oh, yes, my love gosh. it. Yeah. I want to. I want to order like a dozen copies for all of my friends. <laughs> Do it. <laughs> there's like yeah, a, there's a wait list. I had to wait like three months to get it. It's great. Well, and she's got a um, um, Shira Patel and Kathy Sadow. They're going to be talking about in the next two weeks. There's going to be a, a panel discussion on that book. So those are two um, incredible. Uh, contemporary trainers that you just mentioned, Mike, Kathy Sadow, and, and Jarek Patel. Um, and I encourage everyone who's interested to, to look up their work, for sure. Anna, thank you so much for doing this. Um, if people uh, want to um, follow you and, and learn about your your future projects, what's the best way for them to, to do so? Um, I just, I, I have very little social media. I, Big Girl has an Instagram account. If you want to look at what Big Girl is doing day to day, that's my, um, my reactive dog who, um, uh, I, who I spend my time training and living with. She is biggirl.world on Instagram, but otherwise I'm not a great social media follower. All right. Well then people can just, uh, Follow you on Clubhouse or uh, keep an eye on the School for the Dogs newsletter as or on Instagram. I'm sure we will continue to uh, promote whatever it is that you do um, because I, for one, am a very big fan. Uh, and Yolanta, Anna Marie, Jay, Mike, thanks for being here. Um, and uh, I am going to post this to School for the Dogs podcast, I think right now. <laughs> unedited raw material um and hope to do something like this again soon so thanks a lot everybody thank you annie thank, thank you it was everyone. great bye bye